Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. I, uh, you know, since I've moved back east, I've been happening to watch sporting events at a later time because I lived in L.A. for so long. I mean, 15 years, and I was in San Diego for five before that, that I got used to watching football at 10 and 1 and baseball at 5. And I'm going to tell you, watching this World Series this last few nights has really gotten me tired because I'm used to watching a game at, let's say, 5, and it ends at 8 or 9, and because it's the World Series, a lot longer. But the other night, the game went to, like, 1.30, and it's just, it's weird, because I forgot I grew up with this, and it's just nuts. But uh, I'm getting used to it. I, I, I have no choice, but I'll have to live with it. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who was introduced to me by uh, the writer of his a book about him, Steve Jones, I met through Facebook, and he sat, hit me up and said, you should get my this guy on, and my guest is Freddie, Freddie Negretti. How you doing, Freddie? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. No problem. So now, now you're from L.A. Now, we're, are you a big Dodger fan? I saw your Instagram. I saw you had a picture, I think, with you and your son at the game. Are you a big Dodger fan? Huge Dodger fan. Huge Dodger fan. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I had a, had a very uh, sad night last night. It's it's so funny because I lived in L.A. for a long time, and I remember it's it was I remember seeing a playoff game years ago, and it was um it was it was against the Dodgers against the Cardinals. We're rooting for the Dodgers, and uh, I believe it was Jose Lima was pitching like the game of his life, and I was getting so irritated because they could never beat the Cardinals in the playoffs, and parents were taking their kids out of the game in like the eighth inning, and I'm like, what are you doing, man? This is baseball. You got to keep them around. Yeah. Yeah, well, fortunately, we we did we got to go to the uh, playoff game where uh, Justin Turner hit that uh, leadoff home run, and uh, we had an exciting season. You know, it was a it was a great season, great playoffs. The end result was uh, disappointing, but you know, um, that, that's that's uh, why why we're fans. You know, that's part of being a fan. <laughs> exactly. You know? So now we'll go next year. I, you know, I know. I mean, I know. I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and I get disappointed every year. So I deal with it. Uh, you might, you might not be disappointed this year. I know. They're looking really good. We never know. So you know, it's funny, guys. I said when Steve introduced that, well, you know, had brought you up. You know, he said you're, you know, you're the pioneering in the black and gray tattoo artist, and uh, in that field. What? How was your? What got to that point? I mean, when you were a kid. You grew up. You you were in a lot of trouble, right? Like like your life is very fascinating. Give me what you've gone through in your life that just makes you know you that you can write a book that you you speak to people. What was your early life like? Well, you know, <clears throat> my early life. Uh, you know, I was in a gang. I was from a barrio, you know, and and uh, on the east side of uh, Los Angeles in uh, the San Gabriel Valley, and um, you know, I I guess. When I first, you know, uh, was amazed with tattooing, I was like 12 years old. I was getting in trouble. I was in juvenile hall from running away from home. And uh, they were going to release me, and I was in this holding tank. And they brought this older kid in. He was probably 16, 17. And uh, he was from Maravilla, and he had tattoos all over. And I was just fascinated. He, he probably would have never, ever given me the time of day. I was a little kid, you know. But we were the only two in the cell, so I asked him, how do you do that, you know? And he's like, oh, yeah, you get a needle and thread, you know, and you melt it into a toothbrush and dip it in India ink, and you know, and he started telling me the process. And he goes, also, you know, uh, 
girl's mascara works. And uh, that night <clears throat> I got released and I was in my bed and I pitched a little tent under the covers with a flashlight. And I got my sister's mascara, and I did my first tattoo on myself. <laughs> so, so you wait. So you did it on yourself. Now, had you? Did people in your family have a ta had tattoos before, or was this like one of your first real no, involvements looking you know, at the sky? Uh, actually, you know, I grew up in foster care, so um, you know, my sister and I were Hispanic, but we uh, we were in a, a white foster home on the outskirts of uh, you know the the Mexican barrio. Uh, I went to school with all those guys, but I was kind of raised a little bit differently. But when I re rebelled, you know, I went to where I thought I belonged and um, started living with the homeboys and all that stuff over there. So I kind of had to learn it, you know, because I was raised in a white foster home. Yeah. And uh, no, as you say, when you oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, uh, go ahead. I was going to say when you were 12. What was your first tattoo of? What What did you think of making? Because it must have been it must have been very a, a daunting task. Because it's like, <laughs> holy crap! You just figured out, and you got the mascara, and you know I can't handle needles. What What did you make a tattoo of? Well, I was I was gonna write my name, which uh, turned out to be uh, too 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 big of a task for me <laughs> at the time, and so I have I have. The starting of an F on my hand. I've always left it there, you know, to to remember the first time I ever, you know, hand poked something on myself. But not long after that, I joined the neighborhood, and uh, I was obsessed with tattooing. And so I, I guess I was still 12 years old, and I had, you know, my my left arm, you know, covered with hand poked tattoos, you know, and it was a uh, for my foster parents, it was, um, you know, frustrating. You know, they even sent me to a psychologist and stuff. And uh, but it turned out okay. I became a tattoo artist. You know, yes. but, you, you, so you know, you're, so you're doing them on yourself when you were twelve. Yeah. Yeah. So and and uh, and the homeboys. So when I was twelve, thirteen, <clears throat> I became like a. You know, and, and I had art ability. My my father and my uncles were were prison artists. You know, so you know I, I could draw, and um, but I just became the go to guy to do the little pachuco crosses and and gang slogans and stuff like that. I tattooed all the homeboys up and myself. Now, as, as, so. As as you're doing it, did you feel that you were getting better at it? I mean, it must be, you know, I mean, when you're that young, I mean, even to do it on someone you don't know, you probably don't want to screw up because then, you know, you might get yourself in trouble. But did you feel like you were getting better at doing it? Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. And also, uh, you know, some of the older guys from my neighborhood got out of prison. And uh, they were prison tattoo artists and they were showing me how it was done with how to sharpen guitar strings, how to make a good little hand poking rig, you know, and um, and they they show me some of the skills to uh, making good lines and stuff. And I, I actually ended up doing some really big tattoos, just all hand poked with with uh, sharpened guitar strings. So yeah, I was getting better at it. Now, as you're doing it. You know what's going on in your life? I mean, because you said you're in you're in the you're in the 
gang you're hanging out was and your foster parents you know sent you psychiatrists how were you how were you handling your life were you getting still getting in trouble and did you feel an inclusion because you were doing this art and you were probably looked at differently than other guys in the gang because you were an artist and you were hooking people up and making them look good yeah making them look hard i guess <laughs> the tattoos i don't think were that good but you know uh the thing is is you know in that culture you know if you had tattoos you're you're a bad guy you know and so <clears throat> but um i was uh really getting in a lot of trouble in fact um i, I never stayed out long you know from from the time i was uh 12 years old till i got out of youth authority when i was uh 20 the longest period of time that i would stay out at once would be like two months so i was pretty institutionalized you know in camps juvenile hall youth authority all these places but you know i i really got good at art though because being locked up all the time you know, all I did was draw and I was really focused on, you know, the cultural aspects of uh, being a Chicano gangbanger, you know. Um, there's certain images that are really important to, to us, you know, like the revolutionary type stuff with Pancho Villa and the, the Chara girl with a big sombrero and the gun belts and religious themes, you know, Catholic images jesus and mary praying hands you know uh crosses roses all that imagery that was so important to us i really really honed in and focused on on that you know and uh, uh you know so i i had a lot of uh, creative in ingenuity in into those themes so when i was in youth authority and i worked in the print shop i remember uh I worked in the camera room, so the, you know, the staff there, they, they'd let it, as long as we printed up the stuff for all the prisons, they would let us print our own stuff, you know, in our spare time. So what we would do is I would take uh, these designs that I'd create, and then we'd reduce them down and put them on stationary paper, you know, put lines on it, you know, for people to, like, write letters home. And then we printed, like, massive amounts of it and we mailed it to all the prisons so all my tattoo designs made it all over the place you know every prison the streets i mean we we printed up thousands of these designs and just mailed them everywhere so so and when people you, would write. let's say when you were so you when you were in in you know the juvenile on three at that time you were really being productive if you think about it it really started somewhat started your career yeah, absolutely. And I, I didn't realize it. You know, I was just doing, for me, it was just part of my uh, culture, you know. And I was an artist, so, you know, I was uh, very focused on creating these designs, you know. And then, so, in Youth Authority, I got in a lot of trouble as well. Youth Authority is, uh, uh, the California Youth Authority is like prison for juveniles. It's uh, by the state. And... Uh, and it's, you know, it's pretty crazy. I mean, you can imagine it's a lot crazier than prison because it's all these young gangsters in these trying to be, you know, what they think is uh, prison-like. And uh, so it's very violent and um, uh, very gang-structured, you know. Um, 
And so I got in a lot of trouble, and I, they added three years of my time in this program called Tamarack. Uh, Tamarack program was uh, a lockup program for hardcore YAs, hopeless cases. You know, they'd send us to prison, Tracy Prison, for 90 days. We'd do an observation there, and then they send us back to this the oldest building being used in the institution at that time, which was in Preston, California. And it was like a, a, a dungeon, you know, like big granite blocks and, you know, uh, um, you know, just, it was just an awesome dark place, you know? So the staff there, their policy towards us was one of leniency, you know, it was like, you know, as long as you guys don't kill each other, we'll let you do what you want we'll let you tattoo we'll bring you pornography we won't search your rooms just no violence you know and um and so at that time right at that time is when in prison they invented the homemade tattoo machine which was uh developed from a a a you know cassette motor you know a motor out of a cassette player and um and so we got the plans on how to make that. We started bu- busting the motors out of all our tape cassettes and making <laughs> tattoo machines. And the staff would bring us ink. So I got really good with that machine. I even helped develop some of the things that that made the machine work better. And our correspondence with the, you know, the prisons, you know, uh, with designs and machine ideas, you know, these those guys that we were writing to, you know, in the prison. And so for the next two years, I, I tattooed every day in my cell with this machine, and I got really, really good at it. You know, it's funny because that, that prison-style machine, it's, so it works kind of like on a rotary basis, you know, because there's a little post that turns around. And now the most, uh, you, the most used type of tattoo machine in the professional realm is the rotary machine something that was developed in prison? That's amazing. Now you know it's so funny because well, it's it's also at that time. Now when you were doing that at that time, and you're getting good at tattoos. Were you thinking about following this when you go out? Because I don't know how old you are, but I'm I just turned fifty four, and when I was younger, a lot of people didn't have tattoos. And now for you, the tattoos were very big in the gang culture, as you said. But what were you thinking when you were doing these tattoos in, you know? when you were locked up, you were doing these tattoos, you're getting really good at it. Did you start thinking that I can do something with this or what went through your mind when you were there, when you were getting closer to getting out? Well, I did, I did think that, you know, I, and, um, I convinced the staff there to, uh, give me a time cut based off that because they, they knew that I was doing these great tattoos and some of the staff even let me tattoo them, you know? So, uh, and it was a circumstance in prison that you will never see ever again or it never happened anywhere else where the guards actually let you tattoo and let you tattoo on them. Very unique circumstance, you know. Usually when I do interviews and I tell tell people that they let us tattoo their gun, we've never heard that. We always heard that people had to tattoo undercover and hiding from the guards and up always with the threat of getting caught, you know, so, but I did think that I could get a job at a tattoo shop. And I remember I used to always tell the staff, Hey, you guys should just, you know, 
one more year in here, what good is it going to do me? Right. You should give me a <laughs> send me to board, you know, give me a time cut. I'll get a job at a tattoo shop. I know I can, you know. And uh, I remember one day they they came up and uh, they said, "Hey Negretti, you're going to board tomorrow." I go, "I'm going to board." They go, "Yeah, you're going to a special board hearing." And I went, and they sent a recommendation that that I had, you know, uh, completely reformed, and I was such a great artist. They were sure that I could get a job as an artist, not a tattoo artist, of course. Tattoos are very frowned on, and uh, they gave me a one-year time cut. And I got out. And, you know, just jumping ahead a little bit, in 1980, I won Tattoo Artist of the Year at a, a, the Sacramento Tattoo Convention. There was one convent, one tattoo convention each year. And that year it was in Sacramento. <clears throat> and uh, on Saturday and Sunday, we opened it up to the public. And so I won Tattoo Artist of the Year. So everybody's gathered around my booth when I'm tattooing. And I was doing something that was very different and unique. Nobody had seen this style before in the tattoo world. It was new. And then I, all of a sudden I heard somebody say, Fernando. And I was like, who's calling me Fernando? Everybody calls me Freddie, you know? <laughs> and I looked up and it was like four of the staff members from uh, Tamarack program saying, dude, we knew you would make it, you know? So it was a... Uh, that was an amazing experience. That must have been great. Now, you said you were doing something different. What was it that you were doing what, what were you doing different in the, is that the black and gray tattoo? Or what were you doing different at that time in 80? I mean, yeah, when, it was, you, when you got so, out, what, yeah, tell me. So what was different? Uh, the style of tattooing, kind of the only style that was out there, was traditional style tattooing at the tattoo shops. And it was very simple outline, a few colors, um bold lines and uh we we as uh chicanos we hated that work you know we liked the prison work because it was with a fine line and shading and our attempt at the at the uh art was to make it look real like realism so when i got up when i got out i immediately set up shop in my apartment and started tattooing all these homeboys and stuff you know and uh, at the very same time, Good Time Charlie and Jack Rudy, they realized the potential in East L.A. and opened up a tattoo shop in East L.A. And they realized that the people over there wanted this style of tattooing. They didn't want color. They didn't want simple. They wanted it to look like it was done in prison. And, uh, and Jack Rudy, uh, his nickname was Wero. He grew up in that culture. He was a great artist. Uh, he knew the design work. And so they adapted their equipment and and started doing this black and gray realism in East L.A. At the very same time, I was tattooing in my apartment. And I connected with those guys. Jack and I got really uh, friendly with each other. We shared ideas and designs. Eventually, uh, Good Time Charlie quit tattooing, and he sold the tattoo shop to Ed Hardy. And Ed Hardy, as you probably know from the brand, he was like the first and foremost of, of the tattoo world. He introduced uh, Japanese style to America, and he caught on to our style and promoted our, our style through publication and tattoo shows, events, and stuff like that to the tattoo world as a new style of tattooing with no color 
just black and gray and realism. So, so that's the style I was doing. And I was mostly doing my Chicano images, which people loved, you know, and, um, and, and I was pretty good at it. <laughs> so how did you end up getting to be the winner of that 1980s show? Like how did, they, how did they figure out, like, do people vote on it or, or how is that done? Like, why did you win artist of the year? I mean, you were good, but I mean, how did people find out? How does that contest like that happen? Well, so, uh, first of all, when I first met Ed Hardy, so they gave me the job there and Jack Rudy and I went on to really, uh, you know, push our style. Our, our main thing at the time was to get people to see tattooing as a form of art because nobody saw it that way. People would say, yeah, well, it's not an art. It's not an art form. And that was uh, uh, Ed Hardy's main goal as well, you know. But I remember when I first met him uh, and I was showing him, you know, Polaroid pictures of the work I was doing. He's like, dude, this is so incredible. I love this. And then he goes, here, here's some work that I've been doing. And uh, and it was like back piece after back piece and full sleeves. It was Japanese style tattooing. And I never saw anything like that on a, on that scale where somebody would use their whole body as a canvas for one picture, you know. And I was just amazed. And and I, I asked Ed to just teach me everything, you know. So a lot of what the Japanese style does is uh, they mix the black and gray, like they'll have black and gray water with a colored dragon or something like that, you know. So what I did was uh, I, I did a full back piece on this guy. <clears throat> and I did like a black and gray Madonna, you know, like a Virgin Mary. And... Um, you know, with a skull on one side and a human face on the other and roses all in the background. But I mixed black black and gray with color. So <clears throat> I put color roses all in the background and I did the skull and the face in in color, you know, with a black black and gray Mary. And so that was the piece that I did. And, um, and so the guy that I actually did the tattoo on was there. But the way they did the contest was uh, you would take a eight, eight by 10 photograph of the work that you did. And then they would post it up on a wall and all the artists would come and uh, judge on, on them, you know, without, in, without knowing who did what, you know? So that year, my piece won by a landslide. You, the five years before that, Ed Hardy always won tattoo artists of the year. So this was the first year that he didn't win. And uh, actually, he didn't even enter, so <laughs> he was really promoting me. And um, so that was an amazing time for me, you know, and it it really, you know, because those are tattoo artists from all over the world, it really introduced to them uh, <clears throat> a fresh new style of tattooing. So, so you're... One that... No, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you're, you're, you know, you're, inter you're, you're introducing the style what what were your plans then to go forward you know because did you want to get everybody into this style and and when did you see when you know what did you do you know when the tattoo world started blowing up i mean how were you involved with that well you know uh you know <clears throat> i mean uh, at that time uh jack and i we knew we were part of something special something different you know uh that 
as we were being connected with the whole tattoo world, which was small at the time, you know, but we knew it was uh, big for that particular, you know, thing, the, the tattoos, you know, what we were doing was something special, something different, and something that would change the whole face of tattooing. So, uh, but again, our main goal, because I, I really embraced the Japanese style as well, you know, and uh, later on I was the tribal stuff as well because my main goal was to get people to realize that tattooing is a form of art and, uh, you know, our tools are as such and the living body is the canvas, you know. And I, I think uh, <laughs> if you look at the way the situation is today, we've accomplished that objective because there's not anyone that would say that tattooing isn't a form of art. You know what I mean? Well, I always agree with you. Oh. I always agree because the fact that, you know, I don't have any tattoos, but when I, when I see like really good tattoos, it blows me away because it is, it is art. You sit there and go, man, it's like a tapestry. And it amazes me that, you know, it's, it's not done with a paintbrush. That's what's, that's what's amazing. I mean, the, the level of artistry that a great tattoo artist has is amazing because I always think, one, man, you got to have some real steady hands. I mean, it's not like someone paints and you mess something up, you can just paint over it. You know, it, it's just, it is amazing. And I'm glad it's considered artwork because, I mean, I see stuff that blows me away. I have friends, a lot, a lot of friends who are in metal bands, you know, from back in the 80s. And they, they have great work and they've always had great work. And it's just, it just amazes me what you guys can do. It's, it's just with like, it's, it amazes me. Yeah, and, you know, we really have to thank you know, uh, the the metal guys and the punk guys um, and MTV because <clears throat> that's what really pushed tattooing over the top, you know. Um, once, once these rock stars started getting tattooed and getting the black and gray or getting the Japanese stuff, whatever it was they were getting, it, and being on MTV with that, it just opened up everybody's eyes to tattooing, you know. That was really, really the changing point for tattooing is when these rock stars started getting them, you know, in the 80s. Now, as you're tattooing, are you still tattooing yourself or what are you doing with your own body? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, my son is a tattoo artist. He's a great tattoo artist. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I never got anything done on my back, uh, you know, because my tattoo my arms are pretty covered and my chest and stuff. I can never see my back. You know, I always wanted to see my tattoos, <laughs> but, uh, so I have him, you know, uh, doing a big piece on my back, you know, we'll probably get it finished this summer. <clears throat> so I'm still getting tattooed a little bit. Now, as you're going through this, you know, the tattoos, tattoo world is blowing up. What's going on in your personal life? Is there a, is there a subculture in the tattoo world? Or were you still, even though you're working with Ed Hardy and stuff like that, were you still hanging out in the hood? I mean, what, what was going on in your personal life? Yeah, I, I was still very much, you know, at first, I was uh, still very much a gangster, you know. Um, uh, but things started to really change for me. And because now all of a sudden, you know, I had a steady job. I was never expecting that um, and, you know, an income and some notoriety, you know, the, my life had really changed, you know, but I was still me, still a gangster, but I ended up getting married 
and having my first son. <clears throat> but then I, you know, uh, starting it, I got heavy into the party life, you know, and I ended up having uh, many years struggle with drugs and alcohol. Now, so when you're struggling with them, I'm just wondering, does that affect your artwork? Because I know, you know, it's like when, you know, you wake up hungover and you feel like crap, the last thing you want to do is concentrate. Was that hurting your work at all? Well, you know, at the time you don't think it, it does, you know, but uh, when when I had, you know, the the last run, you know, that uh, that I had before I finally got completely clean and sober, um, I look at the work I was doing back then and the work I'm doing now, and I could see that that I didn't really care about tattooing at the time. It was more about getting the money so I can get drugs, you know, so I could work more, so I can get more drugs, you know, that, like that commercial. Right. Um, you know, so, and, uh, and also, you know, uh, being involved with drugs, I ended up going back to prison, you know, I'm 50 years old, going to, going back to prison, tattooing with that little homemade machine, you know, for soup, <laughs> you know, soup is the currency in prison, you know, like, uh, the top ramen soup. So, <clears throat> uh, I did, I lost sight of, uh, of, you know, my art and I didn't really care about it. And I, I didn't know what was going on around me because at that time, uh, black and gray made a new push and all of a sudden <clears throat> a whole host of great artists and with, uh, new ideas and new techniques, you know, and the whole thing with the rotary machine and all these companies making really good ink and, you know, just, uh, the tattoo world was advancing by leaps and bounds, you know, and uh, it wasn't until, you know, I got sober, I went through a rehab and I got sober and my life changed and I had a new focus, a new direction that all of a sudden I realized that, hey, things have really changed. It's gotten even better. And so uh, I could have stayed doing the way I always did things, you know, um, but I felt, you know what? I want to stay relevant in my field, and uh, I want to learn what these youngsters are doing, how they're doing it, what can I apply to my art today, and have a fresh, new, you know, be teachable at, at something that I introduced, you know, but that was back in the 70s, you know, <laughs> 70s and 80s, and we did it a certain way, and it was great at the time, but what they were doing today was just phenomenal and I met all these young artists and I became friends with them and I had a new direction and a new focus on my art and I think I've I've, uh, <clears throat> I've come a long way I've come a long way and I'm still learning and I'm still open and teachable and still trying to inject my own ingenuity into it and so I didn't want to end up being the old legend guy, you know, where people said, come to, to get a souvenir tattoo, you know, I wanted to have, it's, it's, uh, it, it's encouraging for me to have people <clears throat> book appointments 
not because I'm Freddie Negretti. They don't even know who Freddie Negretti is, you know? Right. But they see my work on Instagram or Facebook or in, in publications, you know? They're coming to me because of my work. Right. Now, you know, when, now, when you were going through your problems, you know, when you said, you know, you, you were on drugs, did, did does any of these people you worked with say, hey, man, you know, you're losing focus or were you just so into the whole scene and the parting that you didn't pay attention? No, I don't think anybody would have. Uh, I, I was always a real hard-nosed guy, you know. I don't think anybody had the courage to come up and tell me something like that. But, now, was there a defining you know, was there a defining moment that said that made you said you know what I have to get into rehab because a lot of people say there's that one moment that they notice they go man you know I'm I'm losing it and you said you went back to jail but was there anything that just you what you just said I have to get sober yeah when I was uh, <clears throat> when I went back to the county jail in 2007 and uh, I had already in 2004 I had gotten that congestive heart failure drug induced congestive heart failure and now I was uh, in uh, Los Angeles County Jail suffering from, from severe you know withdrawals at the same time with this uh, congestive heart failure as bad as it could get and I had a series of heart attacks <clears throat> and ended up in, like in a wheelchair and going back and forth to the to the uh, jail hospital, and um, I actually thought I was going to die in there, but it was at that time that <clears throat> I I prayed and asked God for a little bit more time so that I could redeem myself. And I didn't want to die in the county jail like that, and I made an amazing, miraculous recovery, and from there, all. I'll, instead of having to go back to prison, the judge decided I can go into rehab. And I went into that rehab with an open mind and a willingness to do whatever they asked of me because all I wanted to do was be stay sober and clean. I just needed to find out how to do that. So these treatment centers, as much negative as you know that people say about them, they really do work. If you work it, if you want to make it work, if you want to make it happen, then you're going to get something out of these treatment centers, especially with the 12-step program. Amazing. So that's funny because you said you had congestive heart failure. I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure five years ago. I was in the hospital for five days. And, you know, I smoked cigarettes and everything. And when I got out, I, I just never smoked again. I said, screw it. You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to risk my life on a damn cigarette. But people don't understand congestive heart failure. When they tell you that, it's very scary because no one knows what it means. They just tell you, like when they told me they said you have CHF, I was like, I had no idea what it meant, but it just sounded really bad. And it does open your eyes. Yes, it, it opened mine. I was complicating the matter, you know, with, with drug abuse and then not, you know, because there's certain medication that you take, like the Lasix and the Carvedilol, you know, those things, you know, keep the fluids down. There's a regiment that you had to go through to make a pillow for your heart to exist on, you know, like to make it comfortable, you know. So when I wasn't doing those things, I was killing myself, and I was so close to death that it really snapped me into a new life. It's been over 10 years now, and... Uh, you know, I just have a wonderful life, probably the most 
<clears throat> the best years of my whole life have been these last 10 years, you know, so. Now, you said you were growing, you know, you were learning new stuff, and that's great, because I think even when you're a master, you can learn, and that's good, and as you said, you know, you're right, a lot of people are too stubborn, like, you know, technology changes, as you said, the art, the, the, the market change, tattoos have become much bigger, you know, as you say, people have whole bodies now, where, you know, little kids from the white, the white kids from the suburbs were never getting full arm things years ago, so you're going into that, now, how did you start working with Hollywood, because I know you've been involved with some uh, different shows and stuff like that, how did that, that part of your career start? Well, um, that you know that actually started uh you know years years back uh it was another period of time when i was clean and and uh <clears throat> and i remember this uh and i had come back to tattooing and i was doing really nice work and uh i was at this tattoo convention in anaheim and this movie director uh <clears throat> came came up to me and said hey uh I heard that you're the person I should talk to about prison tattoos, you know? And I go, yeah, yeah, you know? And uh, he sat, he he knelt there and watched me do a whole tattoo on this guy's leg from start to finish. Without saying a word, he just watched me do the whole thing. And uh, he goes, you know, we really like to uh, talk to you about this production that we're doing, uh, Blood In, Blood Out. And uh, the director's name was Taylor Ackford. <clears throat> so... I um, <clears throat> I went and they hired me for the job and I ended up, <laughs> it's a long story, but I ended up kind of saving their butts, you know, because back then tattoos from movies, you know, they weren't like tattooing itself, it wasn't that popular, you know, and they weren't really using tattoos from movies. So a definitive application wasn't there yet, you know, so there it was all, you know, and I had to do these tattoos for these, the actors, these prisoners. I developed a, a technique that that worked good while we were filming in San Quentin. And then uh, <clears throat> the director, when we went back, we were headed back to L.A., the director told me, hey, we found this other uh, makeup artist that invented a really good way uh, for, you know, temporary tattoos. And I really want you to work with him. And uh, that makeup artist's name was Freddie Blau. And uh, his his company was Real Creations because he makes blood and all that other stuff too, you know. But he developed a technique for doing temporary tattoos that was fantastic. And uh, so <clears throat> for the next uh, almost 15 years, him and I worked together on um, uh, over 30 feature films and a lot of TV programs. Movies like Blade Trilogy, you know, Con Air, uh, Fatal Instinct, a ton of movies. Now, now, what so, do you what do you put on? Like, how long does it a uh, tattoo last? Like, let's say let's say Con Air, you know, you got to do a bunch of the the convicts. How long are those tattoos going to last them on the guys? Or are they something that they come in? How long do they like when you do a tattoo in a movie? How long does it take? Does it take the same time as a regular tattoo takes? Or and then how do they get them off? I mean, what's what is the what goes on it? It's not like a henna tattoo, I'm guessing, but what is it? Well, it's actually a liquid makeup, you know, and it's uh, it's 
uh, alcohol-based. So you apply it and remove it with 100% alcohol. And um, <clears throat> so for the for the tattoos that were that we knew people were going to get because it was I was always adding new tattoos with just a brush. Um, but we would print those tattoos on kind of like a newsprint paper. <clears throat> and then with the 100% alcohol, we would just uh, st- stick it on, you know. And then I'd come in once it was stuck on, depending on what the, you know, uh, um, what the design was, then I'd come in with a brush and add shading or color or whatever else needed to be in there, you know. So it it was <clears throat> it was a a good way to, to <laughs> you know firm a job for me because they had to uh, get special rules from the union to allow me to actually work on the set. So I was like what was called a working TA technical advisor that can actually work. You know, they created that title, <clears throat> you know, because they needed me to go on set and do this work. So. Um, so, and they would last, uh, it was fairly waterproof, you know, so they could go through some heavy scenes, you know, fight scenes, things like that, uh, sweat. I mean, even in, uh, blood in, blood out, our tattoos held up really good in the shower scenes, you know, so, um, you know, they, they would hold for about two days, you know, each day that they worked, you know, I would touch them up. Uh, after the third day, we'd have to restick it, you know. And so now they have a whole new process. Of course, computers took over. <laughs> yeah. So one of the makeup artists that, that helped us out a lot whenever, because he was such a great artist, uh, if we needed, you know, somebody else, that, his, his name was Rick Stratton, and he would come and, and uh, work with us on applying these tattoos. So eventually... Um, Freddie Blau, you know, he, he was older, so he he eventually retired. And then I started having trouble, so I didn't do it much. And so Rick Stratton and uh, this other guy came up with a new method where it's kind of like uh, the Cracker Jack tattoos. You know, they print the tattoo on this uh, matte kind of film and just stick the tattoo fully colored or fully shaded with water. You know, so that's the process they're using now. That's crazy. Now, now your son, you said your son's a tattoo artist. Was that, did, did he, did you know he would follow in your footsteps or and were you proud? And then what's it like? I mean, because for him, you know, because you are a name in the business to, to live in maybe your shadow, even though, as you say, it's such a different tattoo world. How did it, how is it that he became a tattoo artist? Did he come up to you and say, dad, I want to do this? Or how did that happen? Well, you know, I knew he was, he had art ability, so I was hoping that he'd follow my footsteps. Uh, you know, and I, I owned a tattoo shop <clears throat> at the time in Santa Barbara called Rata Tattoo. And um, he still had his little cholo ways, you know, <laughs> and he got kicked out of school, like expelled. So I said, you know what, that's it. You're going to do an apprenticeship now. So the guy that I had... But I didn't want him to do it under me directly because, of course, I would teach him a lot of things, but I had too big of a soft spot for him. You know, I didn't think I, I would be 
tough enough on him, you know. So I had the manager of my tattoo shop at the time uh, do give him a year apprenticeship, and um, and he started actually doing tattoos for money there when he was 15 years old. So I put him to work, and then <clears throat> we've been on this journey together as father and son. Um, <clears throat> We worked at Tattoo Mania on Sunset Strip and, and now Shamrock. We tattooed in Hawaii a little bit together. So it's been a journey that we've been on together, you know. And he has his own style. And um, right now what's really popular is uh, the fine line designs, you know. And um, like small, realistic looking if you look at his page, you'll see the stuff that he does is Bubu Negretti on his Instagram. And uh, <clears throat> that's the style that's really popular with the main, with all these hipsters and stuff. So he's now, making a, he created a little niche for himself, you know, and well, he's doing great. On your Instagram, to see, look at these tattoos and they're, they're just amazing. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, like there's one that you have a picture and you have so many followers. It's it's a dog on a guy's arm, and I, and I think it's your latest post. And there's two dogs, and one's a little I don't know, like schnauzer. I think this one's schnauzer. Yeah, right. How long does that take? Because it looks so. I mean, it looks so. It's just an amazing. It looks like someone penciled it, but you're doing it. You're doing it with a machine, as you said. So how long would like that schnauzer take? And how do you sit there? Are you? How do you keep? the focus to give it so much detail? Is it just that you've done it for so long now? It just comes natural to you? But, like, how long would that schnauzer take? Uh, the schnauzer took three hours, and uh, the pit bull uh, took uh, closer to four hours. And, you know, so, so it's amazing how many people want to do these dog portraits. I started doing them a, a, a while back. A lot of them I don't even post because it's just another dog portrait, but you'll see a lot of them on my page, you know, so <clears throat> they're hard to do, you know, because you got to try to get that little hairy look, you know, it's a, it, it's not real easy to do. And some people that may do, you know, like a human face portrait really, really good. They don't like doing the, the dog portraits. So I get a lot of people that come to me just for dog portraits. Now, do you do an outline first, or do you just start full blast, go in there and say, I'm kicking this out right now? I mean, how does it work? Well, <clears throat> you know, uh, back, in, back in the old days, that's how we would do it. We would uh, approach a design, outline the whole design first, and then shade it all in. And uh, one of the <clears throat> uh, changes that these uh, younger artists started doing was starting at the bottom of the tattoo and just working your way up, finishing it as you go, which is a better approach, as long as your stencil doesn't wipe off, but uh, which is a much better approach for two reasons, because, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> it's almost like uh, if you imagine your, your piece of art on a grid, you know, and you, you finish that one piece, and you just focus on that one piece and make it as, you know, as best as it's, it can be. And you work your way up like that. Your tattoo is just going to come out better, you know. Um, the other thing is the pain. Because when you would 
say, take that little dog, for instance, if I were to outline the whole dog and then start shading at the bottom where I started the outline, you know, uh, by the time I get to the to upper part, it's like really sore because it starts to get sore wherever you did the outline. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but, you know, finishing it as you go uh, makes it less painful, which uh, makes people uh, more likely to get a big tattoo finished in one session, you know, like five, six, even up to eight hours of tattooing. And then I use all the, uh, the new products, the numbing products. Okay. So... Um, actually, I don't numb it before I start the tattoo. I use this product that that um, it's kind of like a Vaseline, and it has lidocaine mixed in it. So you can use that as you go, or you can stop and rub this other uh, stuff that's called tack. It really numbs it up good, so it keeps the tattoo pretty numbed up. You know, and I don't mind using that. Some people will say. Oh man, no, that's a chicken shit way. You know, <laughs> you got to take the pain. You know, and uh, I don't see it that way. Whatever I can do to make, um, you know, the tattoo less painful, I'll do. You know, so that I can do a bigger piece and and get what I started done. Because I don't, I hate to start a tattoo and not be able to finish it in one session. You know. Okay, I gotta ask and you. This so is really big. I gotta ask you something. You always hear people say different things. You're an expert. You've done tons of tattoos. What are the three most painful places to get a tattoo? Like some people say in the stomach, but you would know. What like, you know? What what do you think is the most painful? Like one one or two or three most painful places to get a tattoo. Well, I would say um, for me, the wrist to me was the most painful. I don't know why, but the wrist just felt like you were just slicing my, my, you know, my wrist. Um, the collarbone is extremely painful. And, um, and the ribs, I think those are probably the three most painful popular places where a tattoo might end up. Now people will say, you know, the elbows and the knees are extremely painful, but not a lot of people get their tat their elbows tattooed, but, but the places where people get tattooed a lot, like the ribs or the wrist or the neck, those are the three most painful spots, I would say. Now, of all your work, can you can you pick out to you, which is what you could say is probably one of your most favorite pieces? Is there anything that just sticks out to you or something that was very challenging to you? Well, you know what? I would, I would have to say that that, that Madonna piece that I did in the late seventies is still my favorite piece because of uh, the influence that it had in the whole tattoo world. And Ed Hardy called it the tattoo of the decade. And, um, and you can see a picture of it in my book, you know, it's in there, but I think, uh, you know, it was a defining time for me, you know, and becoming a professional, at what I was doing and so still is and probably forever will be my favorite tattoo. That's awesome. So now, now the book is called Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. 
what made you decide to get a book written about you? Like, did you, did Steve approach you? Did you approach Steve? How did this book come up? Well, I thought about, you know, writing a book and a lot of people ask why, okay, why, why did you write a book? Why do you think you should write a book? And, uh, because I, I felt like, you know, um, that the Chicano experience in uh, East L.A. in the 1970s is a point of interest. People are interested in that time and what we were doing with the car, lowrider cars and the style of dress and the tattoos. So <clears throat> I thought that was a point of interest, and that was my life. That was my experience. So I thought that was something interesting to write about. Also, prison life especially California prison life because it's so distinct with its racism and its its uh, racial barriers and bonds, you know, and the gang activity, things like that. People are really interested. And also the ingenuity, you know, the whole tattoo thing. We can thank California prison for that, you know. And um, so people are really interested in uh, prison life, you know. So and I, I have that experience. Uh, to share, you know, the tattoo experience. Um, I think a lot of people, they love tattoos, but they don't know exactly how we got to this point where we're at. And I was a part of that history. So I felt I had a story to tell about that. But most of all, uh, it's a story of redemption, a story of new life, new beginning, starting over, um, hardship, and how to deal with that hardship, how I dealt with it. And how I, you know, um, reinvented myself to uh, have a new life, you know. So those are the, that's what the book is really all about. And with Steve, you know, and I, I, I had thought about writing a book, but I'm not a skilled writer. or I don't think I even have talent to write, but <clears throat> um, I knew that I would need some help with it. And uh, so I was speaking at this meeting. It's uh, called CGA, Criminal and Gangsters Anonymous. It's kind of like um, AA or NA, but, you know, um, it was formed in prison. It's kind of like, you know, being a gangster and a criminal is also a form of addiction, you know, that lifestyle. So they formed this uh, CGA, and uh, they always like having me speak at the meetings because, I had that gangster criminal, you know, background. <clears throat> so anyways, uh, Steve is from London and he lives in Austria and he was here working on another project about some woman and he was here speaking with her daughter who lived in Malibu at the time. And, um, and her daughter was a friend of mine from rehab and told Steve, hey, you got to come to this uh, meeting tonight and hear this guy speak. So Steve came, and I met him, and then we all went for coffee after. And I mentioned to him that I was really interested because he was told me he was a writer, a screenplay writer, you know. And I told him my interest in writing a book. And he told me, well, you know, I, I've never done anything like that, but maybe I can steer you in uh, the right direction, how you might be able to get this project started and done, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so we exchanged numbers and what have you. The next day, Steve was driving to San Francisco, and he said it hit him like a ton of bricks that, you know what, I'm going to write this story. Cool. I'm going to write it myself, you know. And he called me and goes, you know what, I'm going to write this story for you. And so uh, that's when 
and we immediately started. So it was uh, like six years in the making, you know, in the works. We we faced every obstacle that that you can face, you know, and finding, you know, getting uh, our our project our um, proposal done, uh, finding an agent that wasn't easy. Finding a publisher was nearly impossible. It was a miracle how we got somebody, but it all came about, and it's a reality now. So we're really happy with the work that we did. It's, I think it's a great book. You know, um, Steve did an amazing job writing it. He's a screenwriter, so he, uh, I think he added an excitement to the book. You know, that carries through that that makes it read well. Uh, we got a lot of great pictures in there. You know. Uh, and a lot of pictures of my early days as a gangster. And so it's, it's a great book. It's interesting. Well, it's awesome. It's, and it's called Smile. Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. It's by Freddie Negretti and Steve Jones. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on, Freddie. This was great. Steve had hit me up. And I was like, yeah, because I heard your story. Now, your your Instagram is at Freddie Negretti. Is that what it is? Uh, at Freddie underscore Negretti. And that's uh, Freddie with a Y. So it's F-R-E-D-D-Y underscore Negretti, N-E-G-R-E-T-E. All right, well, that's great. So people, check it out. There's some really cool work on there. So people, check them out on Instagram. Check out me on Instagram. It's at CooperTalk1. Also, go follow me on Twitter. It's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 560 episodes or 650 episodes. I don't even know. I've done so many of them. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And it's funny, me and uh, me and Freddie were talking about congestive heart failure. When I got out of the hospital, I wrote a low-sodium cookbook. So you can go to stopthesalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. There's no pictures to intimidate you. Uh, easy ingredients, so you know you don't have to buy cumin. It's easy stuff. It's good for cooking for one. It's stopthesalt.com. Get it on that. Get it there. I'll sign it for you. Or you can get it on Amazon.com. But if you get on Amazon.com, I make less money. So people, go check out Freddie on Instagram. The work's amazing. Go buy his book. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys soon.